0: Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue our study this Lord's Day of this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we started into chapter 6 and I pointed out that this is a troublesome passage for many. It's a passage that is often taken out of its context and it's one that is very sobering, somewhat stunning when read in its context. Uh, we find in Hebrews 6, the the writer is warning, giving a very stern warning to believers against those who might consider falling away from the faith, walking away from the faith. And so, uh, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon to get a fuller understanding of what's taking place in this chapter and at this point in the letter to the Hebrews. But But where we landed there was that Uh, If we stay immature in our faith, if we don't desire to grow in our faith, if there's no actual fruit of our faith, then the indication is that we don't actually have genuine faith in Christ and that we will fall away. Uh, But for those with genuine faith, uh, we will persevere. That, That is the encouragement that we receive from this letter and from God in the book of Hebrews. And so today, we're going to pick up on that encouragement, pick up on that assurance that we can have in our salvation as we look at verses 9 through 12. Uh, But to put this in the context in which it's written, I want to go ahead and read again, uh, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 6 on down through chapter 12. And so, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us, remembering that we, we, we stand because this is God's holy word given down to His church through the ages, and and we get to hear that word proclaimed today. And so this is what the the Holy Spirit writes to us uh, through the writer of Hebrews. Chapter 6, beginning there in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your promises. And we pray, Lord, that we would indeed hold fast to the promises of your word, that we would hold fast to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, today for those who may be weary and struggling and suffering, Lord, that they would be encouraged to remain steadfast in their faith. I pray for those today, Lord, who may have a false sense of assurance, may believe they are followers of Christ and yet bear no fruit of the gospel in their lives, I pray, Lord, that they would be awakened to see the truth of your word. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that you might grow us in faith and patience and repentance as we walk through this text together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Well, about... 27 years ago this month, I was a sophomore in college, and at that time, as much as my focus should have been on my studies, my focus was in a different direction because a young lady had caught my eye and my attention. Uh, I had started spending some time with Miss Sandy Hagler, and we were friends, and I was wanting us to become more than friends, and ask her to start dating and to be my girlfriend. And uh, I was rather nervous about this. And so uh, I was praying and and trying to figure out the right time. And and so this is how it worked out in God's providence. Uh, There was an evening where Sandy and I were at a a ministry event. We were involved in a campus ministry together. And I was uh, being a gentleman and I was walking her to her car. And so as I was walking there, I was holding her Bible and her journal, which contained her very private thoughts, And as we were getting closer to the car, completely, I promised by accident, I dropped the Bible in the journal. And when I reached down to pick it up, by God's providence, the journal just happened to open up to a page where I saw the phrase, Feelings for Richard. And suddenly this boost of confidence came over me. And I was encouraged to action. Now, I told Sandy I was going to tell this story, and she reminded me that she wasn't sure what feelings she had for me. That's why she wrote that <laughs> in, in her journal. In fact, she said at the time there was another guy that was interested in her, but I noted that I didn't see his name in her journal. So, so things worked out uh, in my favor, hopefully hers as well, and where, where we are today. But there was something, I share that with you comically, but realistically, that there's something about seeing something like that that kind of gives you some assurance, gives you a, a boost of confidence where you're not just trusting in your feelings or your thoughts, but there's there, there's some piece of evidence, there's something there in writing that you can move forward on and act on. And that is very much, on a much more serious level, what God has given us in His Word. We need to remember as we walk through this letter to the Hebrews, that this was a letter to the Hebrews. These were words written down for the encouragement of a group of believers who were struggling in their faith. Many were tempted to walk away from their faith. And so these weren't thoughts in a private journal. This was the revelation of God given to them for their encouragement and for their growth in the Gospel. It's a very... Uh, strong letter at times as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It it contains many warnings against what might happen if they are to walk away from their faith. And at the same time, it includes great encouragement of the assurance that they could have as they trusted in Christ. And so I hope that after we looked at that passage a couple of weeks ago, I I hope that you went home and, and considered what God's Word calls us to about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is a good thing to really process through the Gospel and to ask the question seriously, have we indeed authentically responded to the Gospel? Well, we live in a day in a culture where there are many who have a false sense of assurance, where when you talk to them about their faith, that they're very quick to talk about uh, walking an aisle or when they got baptized or, or when they prayed a prayer. And, and those are important things, but many times that's all they talk about. That there's no ongoing fruit of the gospel in their lives. They're, they're pointing backwards to something that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago at times. And for some, they, they have a false sense of assurance because there's no true gospel fruit in their life. And so this, this letter to the Hebrews is meant to, to stun us at times and shock us at times to remember, what well, we need to look not back to what happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, although that is significant, but we need to look and see is there ongoing fruit of the Gospel in our lives. And if not, is it because we're, we're struggling or is it because we never had genuine faith to begin with? And so... The writer of Hebrews has brought his readers to sort of a fragile state here as he's given them this strong warning about what happens if we walk away. But notice how he now comes and comforts them and encourages them and offers them assurance. And I hope that's what God's word does for all of us today. And so we're going to look at this issue of assurance of salvation, beginning with the first point there in your outline. Uh, We can have full assurance of salvation. We can have this. this. This isn't something we should put off, we should hope for, we should dream about. No, we, we can have this assurance of this hope that we can have until the end. This assurance of salvation. Notice what the writer says there in verse 9. Though we speak in this way... He's referring back to what he's just said, that this great warning he's given. And if you'll remember there in verses 7 and 8, we read them just a moment ago, he's given this picture of two different fields. One field has received the rain and has produced a great crop, and the other field has not received the rain, and what it has are thorns and thistles. And he said, these are two pictures. These are two people. And as you consider these things, as I I write this way, even though I say this, yet in your case, beloved. He uses this term of affection, this term of endearment. It's as if he's gathering them around saying, come closer, brothers and sisters. Let me tell you what I see in your life. Let me tell you what I see in your field. It says, in your case, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure. Now, that's a word that has rather casual meaning in our vernacular today. So, for example, I know this would never happen here, but in other churches, sometimes people write notes to each other in their worship guide. And sometimes in the 11 o'clock service, they might write a note that says something like uh, lunch today, where do you want to go? And offers suggestions and uh, some even, you know, very unspiritual people might say, well, yeah, let's, let's go to this such and such restaurant. And then they might reply, well, sure. I'm mean, Sure. It's just a casual thing. Sure. It's, it's not quite okay. It's a step beyond maybe. But it's not a real confident term. But in the context here in the Greek, this is about as confident as you can get. When the writer says we are sure of better things, he is saying we have complete confidence about something that is undoubtedly true. He has looked at their lives. He is recognizing, I I am sure of God's work in your life. I am sure of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I am sure of these things. What things? Things that belong to salvation. And so in essence, he's calling their attention to these two fields. And he's saying, look, that there's a field that reaps no harvest. There's thorns and thistles. It takes us back to Genesis 3, that the curse and the fall, that that's what the land's going to do. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. It's just cursed. And then you see on the other hand, this field that's a field of blessing, that's receiving the rain and producing this crop. And he's looking at their lives and he's saying, I feel sure as I look to your field. That yours is a field of blessing. That yours is a field that's producing a crop. That yours is one that is yielding the fruit of salvation. And he's writing these things that they might too have this assurance. Friends, it is not a prideful thing for you to have assurance of your salvation. It is not a boastful thing for you to have confidence in the gospel. God's word over and over again. Gives us this word. And gives us this confidence for a reason. 1 John 2.19. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It's a passage that describes to us very clearly. What we see in Hebrews 6. That there are some who will seem that they were part of us. And yet they will walk away. He writes there in 1 John 2. They went out from us. Referring to those who fell away. Because they, they weren't of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain, they all are not of us. He's saying there's going to be times when people walk away from the church, walk away from the faith, and that is now giving us evidence. They never had genuine faith to begin with. But as he writes these things in his letter, he goes on to say, but you can have confidence, you can have surety that you indeed have been saved and born again and belong to Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, it says, and this is the testimony, so this is the sure word that God gave us eternal life. We didn't earn it, we didn't go receive it and grab it. He gives it to us. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I just want to ask you the question right now. Do you have the Son of God in your life? I'm not asking you, have you heard the name of Jesus? I'm not even asking, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? I'm asking, have you confessed Christ as your Lord? Have you bowed your knee to Christ? Have you acknowledged full allegiance to Him? Have you turned from your sin? Have you gone through the process through which you said to God, I want to die to all of it. And I want to be made alive to Christ. I want my life to be different. I want a new heart. Have you indeed repented and placed your trust in Jesus Christ? If you have done that. The Scripture says you have the Son. And if you have the Son, then you have eternal life. And friend, eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins the moment that you believe. So if you're in Christ right now, you are living this eternal life that He offers. But if you were not in Christ, then the Scripture warns us and the Scripture calls us to turn and trust in Him. And so we, we can have this eternal life. We can have this full assurance. But, but how do we get it? How, how do we fully receive this assurance? Well, we'll go on to look at that. Point two. We see here that our assurance is rooted in the character of God. That this assurance isn't rooted in our feelings, our thoughts. It is rooted in the character of who God is. Look to verse 10. For God is not unjust. The writer here calls our attention to the character of God before turning to the works of the Hebrews, he points out. Look at the character of God. God is not unjust. And he's saying that our confidence and our assurance is rooted in who God is. And here, the attribute he points out is that God is just. That's the same word used in the Scripture for righteous. It means that God has a holy and a perfect standard and He does not deviate from it and all that He does is according to it. He's just. I find it very interesting that here the foundational attribute that He puts before us is God's justice. Because there are other attributes that are perhaps more inviting, especially to an unbelieving world, there are many who want to focus on the, the, the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God. And these things are, are true of who God is. God is a God who forgives. God is a God who shows mercy. But, but He does not do these things void of His justice. He does not set His justice aside to be forgiving and merciful. And if He did, He would not be a holy, just God. You may think of it this way. Imagine something awful were to happen to someone you love. Imagine they were assaulted and they were robbed violently, viciously. And weeks went on. They they searched for whoever did these atrocious acts. And they found them and arrested them. Found out that this was one of of many acts they had committed. And so there was a trial. And they put this this brutal person uh, before uh, a judge and, and they laid out all the evidence and all these crimes they had committed and and you're there and, and your loved one's buried alive because of what this person did to them and you're hearing how this person's done this to not just your loved one, but many others. And it's time for the judge to give a verdict and the judge looks to this person and says, there, 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 is, there is no lack of evidence here. There, there's no question that that you have committed Terrible, terrible acts against many, many people. Do you have anything to say for yourself? And this person who brutalized so many just just begs for forgiveness. Just begs for mercy. And the judge looks at him and says, well, you you seem to be very, very authentic, so you're free to go. How, How would you feel about that? Would you applaud that decision? Or would you feel internally something burning within you that says, wait, that, that's not right. <laughs> that there's a penalty to be paid here. You, you can't just wipe the slate clean. And yet, that's exactly what many of us expect from God. Many in our world today look to God as this great Wiper of the slate. Well, well, God's just, but, but God's loving and he's merciful. And well, I just believe in a forgiving God and and God, He knows we're not perfect, so so He's just gonna wipe that slate clean for me one day. Or maybe we think somehow if I just do enough good things, say I'll weigh my bad things, then I'll be okay. Imagine that criminal going before the judge and saying, But judge, have you looked at all my community service? I was an Eagle Scout. Have you looked at all the money I gave to charity? That judge would not say, Oh, sure I have, and that's better than all these terrible things you did. And, and a holy God's not going to do that either. And so God is just. And here the writer of Hebrews, he 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 helps us to see this assurance we can have is founded on the justice of God. So how can that be? Well, it's the gospel. It's because we see in the Scripture that, that all of us have sinned and we fall short of God's goodness and His glory and His holiness. And we rightly deserve His wrath. The, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's justice. And so how does God forgive and how does God show mercy while maintaining His justice? He puts His Son, His only Son, Truly man and truly God, who was without sin on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin because that is justice. A penalty is paid. And God, rich in mercy and grace, demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies in our place. And that's why the writer of Hebrews here can say, God's not unjust. He, he's just. Look at the links he goes to to have justice. And therefore, we can have assurance because God is the one who paid the penalty through His Son. God is the one who holds us securely in His hand. That's why we read in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the act of a holy and just God. And we can have confidence in our salvation. We can have assurance in our salvation. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is. You think about that often quoted verse, John 3.16, one that we see written all the time, we hear all the time. Notice that verse doesn't start with, for man. No, it starts with, for God so loved the world. God is the initiator. God is the founder of our salvation. For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He is the initiator. He is the one who shows love. He is the one who brings judgment. It is founded and held by Him. Therefore, we can have assurance. Therefore, we can know that we have eternal life. And the question remains, so where do our actions fall into this? Where do we play a part in this? Or are we to do anything? And the answer from Scripture is absolutely. This work of God in our lives should produce works. And that's exactly where the writer then takes us. Point three there in your outline. Our assurance is supported by the fruit of the Spirit's. Our assurance works its way out in our life through the Spirit's fruitful work through this changed life. Verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Again, he's pointing back to this picture of those two fields. And he's saying, when I look at the fruit of your life, you are the blessed field. You serve one another. You love one another. Your salvation is working itself out. But notice, he clearly does not say here, your works are saving you. It's so important we get this order correct. Our works... Do not produce genuine faith. But genuine faith should indeed produce works. And if we get that order out of balance, if we reverse that, then, friends, we lose the gospel. These works are an overflow of the work of God in our life as He saves us and He redeems us and He renews us and He gives us a new heart. Well, then the overflow of that is, is we work. We, we have an overflow. We have fruit in our life. We, we have a land now that receives the rain and produces a bountiful crop. And He is now pointing here to the genuine faith that has produced lasting fruit in the life of the Hebrews. Hebrews. And he notes their work and their love, how they've served the saints and they're serving other Christians and they're serving brothers and sisters in the faith. We may ask ourselves as we come to that, how do we do in that area? Are we motivated to serve others? Are we motivated to look out for the interest of others before our own? Many times we are motivated to serve others because of what we might get out of it. Do unto others so that they will do unto you is the worldly mantra. And then if we do something for someone and they don't do something back, well then we're suddenly offended and that offense gives us a, a glimpse into our true motivation. But when we're motivated to serve out of a love for Christ and for the glory of Christ, notice here, the writer commends the Hebrews in doing these things for His name, for God's glory, not for themselves. They serve one another. They serve their brothers and sisters in the faith. And also they love them. And again, this is not a love in which they're loving for something that they might get in return. No, this is a selfless love for the glory of God. Not self-serving love, self-serving deeds. And this is made possible entirely through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Spirit works and how the Spirit changes people. Friend, as you examine your life today and you look back to when you first came to faith in Jesus, does your life look any different? Is there tangible fruit there? I'm not asking have you become a perfect person. No, that's, that's not what we're saying here there's one perfect one and that's jesus christ and we set our focus and our gaze on him i'm saying is there a work being done in your life where you're less like who you used to be and you're becoming more and more like jesus now it's not a perfect climb there's some ups and downs here sometimes we're taking three steps forward and two steps back sometimes we're taking two steps forward and three steps back and and it's hard and we're faced with temptation and All types of things in our life. Suffering, trials, we grow weary. But but consider Galatians 5 and this fruit of the Spirit at work in the life of the believer and ask yourself, are these things evident in any way, shape, or form in your life more than they used to be? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see evidence of this fruit? Now, Not of one particular aspect here, because as we looked in Galatians, this is a singular fruit. This is the fruit that comes off of one tree here. This is all being produced through the Holy Spirit. We can't just look at it and say, well, yeah, I'm you know, more doing better at self-control, but I'm a lot worse at... Patience. Do you see this work? Because what the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's looking at the Hebrews' lives, these Christians' lives, and he's saying, I can see sanctifying growth in your life. I can see work in your life. I mean, have you had someone say to you at any point, friend, I can tell a difference in your life. Something is different here. And if you've not had that, and if you don't see that, then I call your attention back to Hebrews 6, 4-8. Is there a genuine faith there? Or is there just a religious facade? I hear the writer's commending this, this fruit and he's saying this is just another aspect of assurance. It is rooted in God. It's a work of the Spirit. And it works itself out through this fruit, which then allows us to persevere and hold fast, which is what the writer of Hebrews consistently is calling us to. To hold fast and to stand firm in our faith. And that's the fourth point you have there in your outline. Our assurance then is strengthened by persevering in Christ. Notice again the writer, these terms of of endearment towards the reader he says and and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope till the end he says i see this in you i affirm this about you now i want you to have this assurance for yourself and i want you to look towards the end and i want you to have your hope in the end well what's the end and he's saying that that day of Christ's return, or Christ taking them home, and them going into glory into the true land of rest, the true promised land. He's already called their attention back to the Old Testament and to the Hebrews in the wilderness who were on that journey towards the land of promise. And he says of us today as Christians, we're on a journey to a land of promise as well. And so our hope is in that day. And if we'll keep our gaze and our focus on that day, then he says, so that you may not be sluggish same exact word he used earlier when he talks about their their dullness of hearing. He's saying if you will focus on that day that is to come, then maybe your ears will open up a bit. And maybe your eyes will gaze a bit. I mean, you think of it this way, friend. If I were to say to you this morning, I believe based on what the Scripture says that Jesus is going to be returning in five days. Now, if I say that, correct me, because the Scripture does not give us that indication. And at the same time, the Scripture says we are to live as if Jesus is returning at any moment, because He may be returning at any moment. And so if we indeed would live that way, I mean, consider what that would look like in your life. If when you got up this morning, you realistically looked at your life and said, if this is the last day I have before the return of Christ, how will that affect how I live? How will that affect what I do? And the writer here is calling the Hebrews' attention. He's saying, listen, if you can get that perspective, then you're not going to be dull of hearing and sluggish. No, then you'll be motivated to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. He calls their attention to Abraham. And we're going to talk more about that next Lord's Day. And he basically puts before them this picture that the Christian life is not an easy one. The Christian life is a very hard one, but if we will keep our focus on Christ, and if we'll stay firm in our faith in Christ, and if we'll hold fast to the Gospel of Christ, then we will make it until the end. It calls on us to trust in these promises and to walk by faith. Because there are times when we're tempted not to do that. That's very much His audience here in Hebrews. That's very much the church today. We we are so often tempted not to walk by faith because we're surrounded by what we see. And we're tempted to walk by sight. It is one thing to be in the congregation of believers and singing some of the great hymns we've sang today and just to, to sing joyfully as we did. All glory be to Christ. It's another thing to walk out these doors and go back home to your unbelieving spouse or your unbelieving kids or your unbelieving parents and to have them mock your faith. It's one thing to sing here together joyfully about the blessed assurance we have in Christ. It is another thing to go out into the world and to get one bad phone call, one bad doctor report, one more piece of bad news after another, to be surrounded with sickness and suffering and death and disease. And yet in the midst of these things, God's word does not change and his promises do not wean and he calls us to remain steadfast and to trust in him. And He says to us, if we will do these things, if we'll hold on to this assurance, then then even in the midst of everything around us falling apart, we can still sing loudly, It is well with my soul. And no matter what this world may befall us, if our hope is in the end, if we place our gaze on Jesus Christ, then we can stand firmly satisfied in the Gospel, joyful in the Gospel, with the fruit of the Spirit evident because of the Gospel. We can have this love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, not because of our circumstances, but because of who Christ is. Friend, do you have that type of assurance today? I know that some of us are going through difficult days And many of you have gone through difficult days. Many of you will go through difficult days. We are not promised in the Christian life to have an easy path. We're promised a narrow path full of hardships and difficulties. But along the way, we're called to set our gaze and our focus on Christ. And if we will do that, friend, then we can sing with confidence it is well with our soul." And so we're going to sing that today as an opportunity to worship, just as a call of confirmation to God's Word. But before we sing it, I thought it may be helpful if we consider, again, the context in which it was written. Some of you know the story of this hymn. It is well written by Horatio Spafford in the 19th century. Uh, Spafford was a very uh, successful businessman. He had many real estate Uh, ventures that had done well in the city of Chicago and things were going quite well for him it would appear his field was blessed Uh, but then in 1871 there was the great Chicago fire and it wiped out his material wealth entirely and yet he still had that which was most important to him his wife and his four daughters and so two years later he put them on a ship bound for England But tragically, that ship struck another ship and it sunk almost immediately. His four daughters that day lost their lives. His wife barely escaped. He heard word of this accident and soon after that he received a telegram from his wife that simply said, Saved and alone. And so stricken with grief, this man who had lost now almost everything that he had in this world He boarded a ship and he set sail so that he could be there with his grieving wife. And on his journey, it was called to his attention that he was now at the point in the ocean where his four daughters and so many others had lost their lives. He gazed over the bow of that ship and struck with grief. He just began to meditate on the Word of God and on the promises of God. And as he did that, he opened up his journal and he wrote these words... When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How do you write that when you experience what He experienced? How do you write about it being well with your soul when you're stricken with grief and you're overcome with burden? Friend, you can do that if your faith is rooted in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're looking with a hope of assurance towards the end. And and I believe that's what Horatio did because he would go on to write this, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He was looking towards that day. Are you looking towards that day today? And if not, we invite you to do that as we stand and we sing this hymn together. If you would stand together as I pray for us. Father God, we do thank you for your timeless and truthful word, for your call for us to have assurance in our faith and our hope set on Jesus, for your call for us to look towards that, that end, the day of Christ's return, the day that we go to be with Jesus. And so Lord, I pray for any here who doesn't have the, the assurance, that the hope that we have through salvation because they've yet to fully place their trust and hope in Jesus. Perhaps they have a, a religious exterior. Perhaps they know all the right things to say, to, to appear to be a Christian, but yet their heart is not yours. There's no genuine fruit in their life. Lord, I pray that You would bring them to repentance and faith. And for others, Lord, who have come to that genuine faith, but perhaps today are weary and are struggling, Pray, God, that you would empower them to have patience and to trust in you and to walk with you. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that as we hold fast to the gospel, that we might be able to confess that it is well with our soul. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.